God's Word. The book of Revelation, chapter 17. Revelation, chapter 17. We'll finish the chapter this morning as I read verses 12 through 18. We find the sorry end of the harlot and the beast after their unholy union in seeking to bring low and bring to an end Christ's kingdom, his church, and the work of the gospel in those early days. Revelation chapter 17, beginning in verse 12. Then the ten horns which you saw are ten kings, who have received no kingdom as yet, but they received authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Thus far the reading of God's words, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of his word. Lord, as we come to you this morning... As we do each and every time we sit to hear and as I come to preach that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. One of the lessons that the early church is learning in this letter that was to be circulated to the churches of Asia Minor and to continue in its circulation to the churches today is not so much of the record of the things that are to be for us, but of the things that are and will be primarily for that church, that weak, young, small church in the days of John's writing. Now I have contended to some degree and would continue to do so that I would hold to an earlier date for the writing of the book of Revelation. And that is important in that it seeks to answer the question of what is John writing about? My great contention, and I'm not alone in this, there are many others who contend as well, that John is writing of the great fall of Jerusalem, of Israel, of that once beloved covenant people of God who in rejecting the Messiah brought upon themselves great calamity. And it is primarily 
the Jews who led the way in the persecution of Christ and his church. It began with the prophets. Ever before Rome arrived on the scene to persecute the church, Jerusalem, Israel, the Jews had entered into that corrupt and unholy practice of ignoring the calls to repentance. Heed the wisdom and instruction of God and to repent of their idolatry, their fornication, their harlotry. And it is in chapter 17 that John is given a vision of a woman, an immoral woman, a woman of adultery and fornication, a woman of harlotry who rides upon the back of a beast who comes forth from the sea, a Gentile nation, the nation of Rome. And in her unholy alliance, Jerusalem or Israel with Rome, they together put to death the Lord of glory. And Rome got good at persecution. And even as John is writing, the great tyranny and persecutions of Nero were going on. And if you are anything like me, in the midst of what feels like great suffering and persecution, something other than success in the work of the building of the church, the question is always, what in the world is happening? Why is this happening? When will the kingdom come as Christ promised to us? And it is easy to lose hope, to give in. Many... Refused to confess the name of Christ in the midst of persecution. They relented. Some would, like Peter, repent of their relenting. Like Cranmer, who was instrumental in the formation of the Church of England, who felt some pressure at the time by that wretched Queen Mary when he gave in yet later he put his hand into the flame that had signed that edict of compromise. As he was about to be burned to the stake, he said, let the hand that sinned go first. The church has known great periods of persecution. The early church under Rome, the Reformed church under the Roman Catholic church in Europe, and even the 20th and 21st century is experiencing greater persecution than any other generation prior. Though we may not feel it, Christ's kingdom is always under assault. And so the question for those who are suffering is, what is going to happen? And the reason why it is essential for us to see the historical context of the book of Revelation is because it is no mere flight of fancy. It is not fantasy. It is not myth. It is a description of the things that have come and as things which have come to, play, to pass, things that have already happened, we find in those things themes that are enduring for the church today. As it has been, so it will be again. The downfall of any power that allies themselves against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't forget it. Two points that I want to make this morning. The first, as it relates specifically 
to Jerusalem and to Rome, giving honor to the wrong master. We see that in verses 12 through 14, giving honor to the wrong master. And then second, every beast turns on its rider. Every beast turns on its rider. We see this in verses 15 through 18. Let's look, though, here at the beginning, at least here this morning, verse 12 through 14, giving honor to the wrong master. This unholy union, as some call it, the negative trinity of the dragon, the beast, and here the woman, Satan, Rome, Jerusalem. When nations act beastly, it is easy for those, even who are religious, who may confess the name of God, to feel the pressure to ally themselves for the sake of peace and success. Rome here is described as that terrifying beast that rises up from the sea, but she is not alone. She has upon her back a rider, an immoral woman, a harlot, someone who has forsaken her covenant husband and God, Jerusalem herself. Now, the reason why Rome is envisioned here is because of her clear partnership in the persecution of the church and in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a real historical event in which two powers allied themselves together, one more unwittingly, the other knowing exactly what they were doing to bring low the kingdom of this one from Nazareth who said, I am the Christ. One power, an expression of wickedness we call Antichrists. These are those religious leaders who stand against the true kingdom of our Lord Jesus. Those powers that are beasts are political in nature, and they come together through Israel and Rome. And when you see Herod persecuting the Jews in the early days when Jesus was about to be born, he was doing so because he thought of the threat of his political power, that someone would come and take away the throne of his kingdom. He had no idea. Much like Pharaoh, this seed of the serpent And then later at the end of Christ's ministry and life on earth, it was the Jews who began to cry out, knowing who Jesus was, because he made it abundantly clear to them, yet hating him because he was the light, crucify him. Crucify him. Not just punishment, For capital offenses, but an unrighteous penalty laid on the back of our Lord. The beast was fueled by the hatred of Israel to the Messiah, and the Jews were enabled and strengthened by their connection to Rome, and both were connected to Satan himself. Now, you may wonder why do nations persecute the saints? This question reveals a misunderstanding or an inability to see why the world functions as it does. 
And this I owe to the rise in the influence of enlightenment in Europe. And in attributing to the things of men accidents, everything is purely physical. We're just meat bags. There is no spiritual realm in which good and evil war. Satan is after the same thing that Christ is after. Total world domination. Christ, in his resurrection, has taken the throne of heaven and earth. That means that there is no kingdom, there is no man, there is no woman or child, there is no caterpillar, no galaxy, no planet, nothing over which Christ is not king. And Christ in his mercy, his patience, his forbearance is expanding in the minds and hearts of men the knowledge and understanding, the coming to the conclusion of Christ is Lord of this. And as Christ's lordship, which is eternal, right? He is the king. But as that kingship expands on earth, Satan sees his power and influence what? Waning. You are here as an expression of Christ's expanded lordship over the nations. And Satan hates the fact that you're here. Because it is a testimony of Christ's lordship. Not to mention, by God's grace, your faithfulness. And anything that reeks of a man or woman or child delighting in their maker and redeemer is like chalk, no, no, fingernails on the chalkboard in the ears of the great deceiver. And the world that is under the influence of the devil is wise in their approach to undermining the lordship of Christ because they are all led by the same schemer. The same deceiver. Have that conversation with your college professors one day. It will blow their minds. Their tiny little rationalistic brains. You know why? Because they have allowed their minds and their imaginations to wither. Because they are not enriching themselves on the scripture. And they have lost the plot it would be like seeking the conversion of the guinea pigs in my backyard what are you talking about (laughs) and yet the holy spirit comes to us even though at times we are utterly led astray we are beastly and he gives to us understanding now what happened was this Christ comes on the scene. The Jews hear of his preaching. They hear that the Son of God has come, that he has come to bring in the kingdom, and they hate the sound of it. There are times where Christ is preaching, and people are shrieking, and they are attributing to the ministry and power of Christ that brings forth Lazarus from the dead, and they say, you are a son of the devil. Why? Because if he's a son of the devil, they don't have to listen to him. But they knew. And so in order to silence Christ's proclamation of righteousness and kingdom coming, they ally themselves with another kingdom to stamp out the Messiah. 
This is not the kind of alliance you should make ever with any nation or any power that is willing to go along with you in order to silence the conviction that comes in the proclamation of the kingdom. And when you do this, you inherit a label. And that label is harlot. This is not a complimentary label. No one needs this name. No one ought to want this name. And so when the Jews said, we'll take Rome in place of Christ and his kingdom, they made a deal with the devil. They sold their souls to a nation that could not actually provide for them the protection, the power, the wealth that they really needed. She, Israel, verse 14, made war against the lamb. But the lamb is greater than the dragon, greater than the beast, greater than the harlot. Because the one whom the Jews allied themselves against is the resurrected one. Now, at this time, John is writing, Nero is in power. And Nero would focus his attention particularly upon the New Testament church. He would imprison them. He would put them in the Colosseum. He would feed them to wild animals. He would dip them in tar and light them on fire to light his garden. He was a master of torture. He was a perverse and wicked individual. And he was not the most. At times, there were others even greater than he, and even ones who came before him. But in particular, John is focusing on the folly of allying yourself with any nation, and especially a pagan nation, for the progress and survival of a religious moral order. The church does not need the nations of this world to achieve her true, ultimate success. Which is to faithfully administer the keys of the kingdom. That is, there is no hybrid proclaimed or taught in the scriptures between the state and the church. But there are responsibilities for both spheres to manifest the righteousness of Christ on earth. Now, what then is the role of the civil magistrate? And you're going, how do we get from Revelation chapter 17 to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 23, paragraph 3? I want you to listen as the Westminster divines expound what the responsibility of every state that has ever existed is in the promotion of the true religion. There's only one true religion, by the way. One. One. And it's not the OPC, okay? It's the proclamation of Christ and the endeavoring to honor him as Lord, the true church. 
civil magistrates, this is a long quote, try and stay keyed in, civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven or in the least interfere in matters of faith. Yet, as nursing fathers, it is the duty of the civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord without giving the preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest in such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons, people that go to church, members of the visible church, whatever shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger. And as Jesus Christ hath appointed a regular government and discipline in his church, no law of any commonwealth should interfere with, let, or hinder the due exercise thereof among the voluntary members of any denomination of Christians according to their own profession and belief. It is the duty of civil magistrates to protect, to protect the person and good name of all their people in such an effectual manner as that no person be suffered either upon pretense of religion or of infidelity to offer any indignity, violence, abuse, or injury to any other person whatsoever, and to take order that all religious and ecclesiastical assemblies be held without molestation or disturbance. That is a Christian nation. Secularism does not allow for the free exercise of religion anywhere. Why? Because secularism is a lie. It is an utter and complete lie for this reason. Secularism is an expression of human authority over Christ's authority everywhere. There is no such thing as a moral secular state Now, Rome was not a secular state, were they? They were hyper-pagan. So were secularists, by the way. They have their gods. We have our gods today, do we not? Look at who our culture reveres. And the hint is they're all sexually confused individuals at this point. What Rome was doing was acting beastly in her disturbance and persecution of the free worship of the saints of God. Here is why Satan despises the free worship of the saints. Because the free worship of the saints makes the church bigger. All you need to do to grow the church is to gather together for worship. And Christ will, by his Holy Spirit, pour out blessing upon you. This is what he says in the book of Isaiah. If you would just stop faking it and actually gathering for worship, bringing your tithes into the storehouse, stop calling the Sabbath a burden and just be joyful in the expression of this religion, God says, I will open up the floodgates of heaven. The great impediment to the proclamation of the gospel of Christ, isn't the world, 
It's those saints who've allied with the world thinking that in doing so, we will be more successful than simply being faithful to God. But it will cost us something sometimes. And the reason it will cost something is because wherever the Holy Spirit goes, and he's everywhere, and moves in the church, Satan follows and he seeks to do what? Disturb and distort and confront the peace and purity of the church. Why did Satan go to the garden? Because that's where man was. And it was there that he could deface, mar the image of the one whom he hated most, given graciously to men. I say all that because John is giving to the church in the early days a doctrine of the church and the state and the eternity of all things. This is how it will go. And when we look at those who are practicing false religion and they have allied themselves with wicked men who wield power, corrupted power, in nations. They've come together, and we look at them and we go, how on earth will we ever prevail? Look at the enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil. And John is saying to the early church, I call the shots. Look at verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose. And when Rome, foolish, foolish Rome, when you see Pilate trying to handle Jesus, it's kind of ridiculous. He doesn't know what to do with him because he doesn't really care. But there's this bloodthirsty group of Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, that say he must die and they trump up charges in order to put him on the radar for Rome. And Pilate should have done what? This is a kangaroo court. Get out of here. This man does not deserve to die. And yet he did what? He was complicit He was complicit and then ultimately active in the murder of the Messiah. And from that point on, what happened to Rome? The snowball of persecution. Second point. Every beast turns on its rider. Uh, Years and years ago, I heard an illustration. And it goes like this. There was a man who, despite the warnings of all of his neighbors, family members, and friends, decided to keep for himself a pet tiger. This man loved the tiger. He raised that tiger from the day of its youth, bottle-fed it. And as you know, tigers aren't content with milk for long. It would soon turn to things like meat. And despite the pleas of all of his friends, get rid of this animal, it will be your end. He said, no, this animal loves me. It knows that I am its master. Until one evening, 
While the man was lying in bed under the covers, his arms slipped out from beneath the covers, and there on his arm was a wound. There was a scab on it. The tiger, which would sleep in the bedroom with him, began to lick the scab. And as you know, if you've ever picked a scab, I hope you've never licked a scab. What happens? It softens, and it begins to bleed. Blood... And the blood of that man began to incite the tiger to greater acts of aggression. And what, became, what began as a lick became a chomp. Took the man's arm off in one crunch, one bite. And then he proceeded to eat the man from the shoulder up. The man was found the next day half gone. I remember hearing that illustration going, cool. <laughs> and he said, this is what it's like with sin. When Cain despises his brother Abel because Cain was unwilling to offer a worthy sacrifice. Prior to Cain's murder, do you know this? God came to Cain and he warned him. And he said, sin lurks at the door. It's right there at your heart. And it wants to get in. And it wants to eat you. John Owen would say, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I don't think Adam and his wife understood that what the serpent was offering them, though they should have, was the very thing that would eat them. They thought they were going to eat it, and it consumed them. It destroyed them. When Israel made a false and wicked alliance with Rome, that was exactly what they were doing. They were trying to tame the tiger. To make an alliance... To do anything other than follow the warnings of God. Sin is right there. And what God has done for every man that so receives it is provide for them the cure for their wickedness. And yet, what do we do? Oftentimes we say, no, I'm going to choose this way. And what did Cain do? He killed his brother. He killed his brother. He silenced his brother's righteousness. And yet, what does Abel's blood do to this day? It cries up from the ground. How true is this even for the blood of Christ, the one who is raised? Jerusalem sought to sit astride that wretched beast and ride her all the way to deliverance from the voice of God. To ignore the ministry of the Messiah by using that nation to put him to death. And when she did that, she brought herself and the beast quite low. Now what would happen? Verse 15, then he said to me, this angel, regarding the kings and rulers of the nation at the time, and here of Jerusalem, the waters which you saw, where the harlot sits. So the beast is on the waters, and the harlot is on the beast, and so she is in effect 
upon the waters. And she is wielding through Rome her wretched ends. Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, the Jews were driving this thing. But like all unholy alliances, what happens to the Axis powers? (laughs) What happens? The beast looks at the woman in order to make her desolate, naked, to eat of her flesh and burn her with fire. What does that mean? You can have no peace with those who hate Christ. What was the Savior for Jerusalem became the nation that would bring her judgment, destruction, annihilation. And the universal principle of this is what? The nations of God toil. They spin. They are all together allied against the Lord Jesus Christ. And what ends up happening? They cannibalize one another. They eat each other. They turn on one another because they are treaties with tigers. They are unholy alliances. How good is this for the church to know? Watch. Watch the nations rise and fall. And if you have a heavenly temperament, an eternal disposition, you can see the nations rise and fall. And you can sit back and you may even suffer and you can say, God will be vindicated. The church will be vindicated. Why is this happening in AD 70? Because the martyrs of the Lord Jesus Christ came before the throne and they said, How long, O Lord, will you wait to vindicate us? And he says to them what? Not 2,000 years or 4,000 or however long Christ tarries. Shortly. Shortly, because Christ is master. And he is, in verse 17, as I've read already, for God has put it into their hearts, that is the hearts of the harlot and the beast, to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast. Christ is in control. He is Lord even of the lost and the depraved. And so Christ manifests his glory on earth by bringing to an end ungodly powers and by multiplying the righteous seed, the church. And so Christ is not worthy of worship to continue with this theme as a tame lion. He is worthy of our trust, our affection, our confidence, not because he is tame, but because he is good. You see, we have allied ourselves in Christ Jesus, not to an impotent God, but to the potentate of time. He is not a God unlike the nations because he lacks power and purpose. And not because he does not have aspirations concerning world dominion, because he does. He is distinct from the beast because he is sovereign. He has the power to carry out his plans. He is good. His purposes for this world are good, righteous, and pleasant. But not if you're the beast. For the beast hates its true master. 
Rome was dangerous for all the reasons that nations can be beastly. They are run by men. And as men that are not under the authority of Christ, they are under the authority of the devil. And they exchange the glory and righteousness of God for a lie, something corruptible and also corrupting. And so what is that for us today? Well, the lordship of Christ is on the move. It is on the rise. And the lordship of Christ is displayed in two ways. Either the establishing of his church, his beloved bride, throughout all the earth, even when it seems as though it is impossible. But also for the downfall of those beastly men and those harlots who, under the operating power of the devil, seek to bring to nothing a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so though he may suffer... Though there are times where we cannot see how in this moment and how it is connected to the future glory of the church, how do we go from A to B? What have you seen? Well, you have seen the church flourish. But more than this, from the age of Abraham to now, three has become billions. More than all of this, It is the fruit of what? The seed that went into the ground and died but was raised. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is Lord of the earth because he was raised in this earth. He is the king. He is the one who though all of the powers of the world may ally themselves against, he will in his resurrected glory win the day. And if that is not good news, then you don't know what good news is. Or what it may mean is, you're looking to the beast and not to the lamb for salvation. Let's pray.